Welcome to Podcast with Cooper Cherry. We have Andrew Stamper, my longtime friend and fellow cinephile, joining me to complete his top five films, or favorite films, or best films, whatever we're calling it now. Yeah, whatever. At this point. But uh, today we'll be taking a look at Andrew's number one film, Back to the Future. Um, definitely a childhood, child time favorite of mine as well. I don't know. Child time? Is that yeah, a child word? time, whatever. <laughs> childhood favorite, I guess, actually. Yeah. That's what I meant to say. But uh, since this is your number one, man, I'm going to let you take it away with the uh, with the synopsis. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, once again, as always, thank you very much for having me. So, yeah, we're going to go ahead and tackle Back to the Future. My, quite frankly, my all-time favorite go-to movie just to watch because why not? You know, I, I literally can watch this movie every day, all day long, on repeat, sometimes have watched it on repeat. Thank God it's a trilogy now. So it's a good you know, one. Yeah, so I can go ahead and watch the follow-ups after it. But anyway, starting with the plot of Back to the Future. Now, I'm assuming that maybe you've lived on Mars and you haven't <laughs> heard of Back to the Future. Like Elon Musk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the story <laughs> focuses on high school kid uh, Marty McFly. And he's just your run-of-the-mill high school boy slackers. And, uh, you know, he... He has dreams of becoming, becoming something, you know, maybe a musician, what have you. But he, for whatever reason, is good friends with local crazy guy, Doc Brown. Why they're friends? Yeah. Who knows? It's really weird that a uh, older guy is hanging out with a 17-year-old kid. Um, but whatever, we're going to go ahead and roll, like, disregard that. <laughs> so, like, this local quackpot scientist and marty have a have a friendship and through one beginning morning where marty mcfly is you know jamming away at doc brown's house and blowing up some equipment uh doc brown gets in touch with him like hey i need you to grab your camcorder i need you to meet me at the twin pines mall tomorrow morning 1 a.m grab your crap don't be late you know i got to go ahead and record some stuff so marty mcfly goes ahead and grab you know gets over there and lo and behold, Doc Brown has a DeLorean that just happens to also be a time machine. And Doc Brown wants to go ahead and go 30 years into the future and see what becomes of the world, you know, um, what what happens. But of course, some complications arise. We find out that the reason why the time machine actually exists is because he uses plutonium as its a kind of agent and he stole the plutonium from some some Libyans you know it was the 80s the Libyans right. were like all the rage it as your villains in the in the 80s so um yeah and then the the Libyans happen to find Marty and Doc and they shoot Doc killing him Marty has to hop in the in the DeLorean and he guns it to 88 and you know it activates the flux capacitor and boom it takes him 30 years into the past to Hill Valley. And 30 years ago, we're going to go ahead and take a step back. We are now going to go ahead and hang out with Marty's parents, who are now teenagers. So when we first met them, they're kind of like this middle-aged couple, not really connecting. You know, um, the mother is an alcoholic. The father is just completely detached. Just, just uh, I don't even know what he does for a living. 
Do you recall what he does? I don't. I don't think they even broach that. Yeah, he he. You know, he's just a pocket protector, nerd, greasy hair uh, guy that's still pushed around by his high school bully, some you know chode named Biff. <laughs> and but his parents are completely. They have no spark. They have no nothing. They don't have any chemistry whatsoever. And Marty has a couple older siblings, a sister and a brother. And the whole family is that that very quintessential '80s family that you saw where everybody was doing their own thing. Nobody was really, you know, just kind of hung around the TV and ate dinner, but nobody really like connected. And so it's kind of a shame because you see you you see Marty's upbringing and everybody's nice, but there there's no like cohesion within the family. But anyway, we're now back in 1955 as Marty McFly went back. And of course, he once he realizes that he is in the past, he obviously needs to get back to the present. But it's not so easy because it's the freaking fifties of you know um, California, and man, there's so much to. I, I, we I, have to generate one hundred and twenty-one gigawatts. One point twenty-one gigawatt. What the hell's a gigawatt? But um, yeah, so he's in he he's in fifties America, and it's a small town, and it's. It's really behind the times 50s America. So, I mean, there are other things that are happening in the 50s, but Hill Valley is just one step behind the rest of the world. So Marty McFly has to find Doc Brown. He finds Doc Brown. Doc Brown obviously doesn't know what's going on. And um, in order for Marty to get back to the future, he has to generate enough energy to activate the flux capacitor, which would require 1.21 gigawatts, uh, or gigawatts, as they say in the film. <laughs> but, of course... Plutonium isn't readily available in the 1950s, so the only thing that could generate that type of power is a bolt of lightning. And of course, you're never gonna know. You never know where a bolt of lightning is going to take place. I mean, that's one of the things. But wouldn't you know it? The historic clock tower that we find out in 1985 was struck by a bolt of lightning in 1955, and the clock tower hasn't worked since. So there you go. Boom. Now you have an idea of what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to get that DeLorean to get struck by that bolt of lightning that hits the clock tower. Setting force, uh, the chain of events that will get Marty back to the back to the future. But that's only one half of the film. One half of the film is obviously getting Marty back to 1985. The other thing is to not disrupt everything else that's happened with his family because if he does than with his mother and his father because if they don't fall in love then there's not going to be a marty in the first place so that's really what this film as far as what i'm concerned is about is it's you've got the action aspect of oh my god we're watching a time machine you know film and we got to get this guy back to 1985 but really the movie works on two fronts because we in 1985 we see his parents his mother and his father and they have no again like i mentioned before they have no relationship and when Marty goes in 1955, he disrupts how they meet in the first place. In fact, like Marty's mother is kind of chasing after Marty, which uh, has a few you know funny moments in the film, which we'll kind of like talk about later on. But he completely shatters what is supposed to happen. So this becomes a film where Marty has to try to get his mother to fall in love with his father as teenagers. So you've got a teenage Marty talking with his teenage version of his mother and his teenage version of his father, played brilliantly by both Leah Thompson and Crispin Glover. And and that's really what this movie is about, is this son trying to 
you know, get his parents to fall in love and not just fall in love, but um, even though it's in the past, rediscover a spark that they've long since forgotten. And fast forward all the way to the end, Reader's Digest version, um, he does it. Um, you know, his father beats up the, you know, beats up the bully Biff. Mother falls back in love with his father, but even more so than maybe it was originally in the 19, you know, in uh, our original timeline. Marty gets back to 1985, but just enough in, um, man, and then I can talk about Doc Brown coming, you know, him saving Doc Brown because he also has to save Doc Brown because he died in 1985. So Marty McFly wrote a letter to Doc Brown, but Doc Brown rip, ripped it up because he didn't want to disrupt the time, a space-time continuum any more than they already have. So there's a lot of chaos. This is a perfect, great example of like putting your characters through hell. Like one, there's one obstacle, and then there's another obstacle, and then there's another obstacle, and you think that you save one, but you still have to go ahead and save all these other obstacles. So it's just one thing after another for Marty McFly. He's saving everybody. He's saving his own ass. He's saving, you know, um, Doc Brown, trying to get his parents to connect, and obviously just do all of that without disrupting too much shit because again it's kind of that that idea of like the butterfly effect not the movie the butterfly but the whole concept of the butterfly effect you know ripples in time exactly so anyway long story short marty mcfly saves a day he saves everybody and but the best of all the bet the best thing about the whole movie is that his mother and his father at the end of the film are rejuvenated the mother is no longer a uh, an alcoholic drinking cheap vodka the father is no longer a, a greased head you know a pocket protector nerd he's a he's a writer his brother who's working at mcdonald's is now has a better job the the sister so they're all better versions of themselves why they still live in that shitty house uh <laughs> i i don't know but uh there are improvements they've got right it's spruced up a little it's bit. spruced up with 80s great um uh, set design in the in the movie but anyway um so that's really the nuts and bolts of the film again i'm I'm assuming if you're listening to this you probably have seen back to the future as it's you you, you can't escape it like uh, my my previous other film groundhog day that we that i had on my list it's one of those movies that's regularly on tv and it's something to be said because the movie came out in 1985 and here we are in 2018 and that movie still gets regular play so i mean yeah, I'm pretty sure you've seen this. And if you haven't, you got to do yourself a favor and watch it because Hollywood, I mean, Hollywood do throw out a lot of shit, but there are some times where there are major like film productions where everything goes right and you can get a truly excellent blockbuster. Definitely. Um, so I want to structure this one a little bit differently because I was going through it through my screening and it didn't really fall into the same, I don't know, the same kind of filmmaking breakdown that I usually go with so sure i want to start out with i guess what i'm calling commentary which is i don't know just kind of like a mixture of i don't know anecdotes and just kind of observations about the film that i think are somewhat some are amusing and some are just whatever just kind of banter Mm -hmm. yeah but i want to start there um just on some funny things that i noticed and this is the first time that i think i've really sat down and watched the movie with intent the intention of really kind of like you know what i mean paying close attention because usually it's it's you know it's been on but and i'll catch bits and pieces but it's not something that i've watched intently since i was a kid right and my perspective is so much different now it's funny um some of the things i noticed like one of the big things i noticed immediately was how kind of cold-hearted it was for doc brown to be testing out the time machine with 
Einstein in the car. Right. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he made his dog the first ever uh, time traveler. Like a space monkey. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was pretty funny. Um, another kind of weird weird thing that I noticed at the beginning is whenever he has Marty, Marty shows up and um, he's showing him the DeLorean. He's like, when this thing hits 88 miles an hour, you're going to see some shit. Yep. <laughs> just, uh, see some that was hilarious. Shit. That I don't know. It just felt so... I had this, I guess, picture of Doc, the Doc being a little bit more like straight laced mm-hmm. and uptight, kind of not not like super uptight, but he has like a little bit of a formal presence in most of the film, and he's kind of like advising, you know, Marty all the time about don't, you know, you're gonna screw up the, you know, what I mean, he's so concerned about that. So yeah, it's kind of funny that he like you're gonna see some shit. <laughs> yeah, I, I think honestly, I think that I think some of those those tasty lines that Doc says. I I would not be remotely surprised if that's kind of just Christopher Lloyd like improving some shit, just giving giving some like tasty lines because you've got that line and you also have the like the final line of the film, right? You know, like roads where we get we're going, we don't need roads. So I think there there's just some just and if it was scripted, I mean it, it it's Christopher Lloyd having a little you know, taking a little bit more liberty from some of his other um scenes in the film where he where he is a little bit more structured as far as like not disrupting space time continuums and what have you you mentioned this in sort of the synopsis but i did think it was funny that he chose they chose libyans and like what the doc is what are you doing you're stealing plutonium from libyan terrorists like what (laughs) yeah let's just like (laughs) Like take that just like analyze that for a second i mean just stealing plutonium from libyan terrorists and just thinking you can get away with it like yeah and they don't really spend a lot of time going into like the exposition of that i think he just is he just pretends to be surprised that they've tracked him down yeah um I don't know how, but they found me. Boom. A little, <laughs> right, yeah. one, how one little piece of dialogue can go ahead and solve like your, your holes in a film. Cause there are, I mean, there are, there are certain things that don't make any sense at all in this movie, but you're like, all right, whatever. They're, they're, they're flaws, but they're not flaws that you're going to, you're going to linger on. Cause otherwise we would like, wait a second. Why is this 60 year old creepy doc hanging around like the 17 year old boy, you know, right. like it's like, this is like the inspiration for Rick and Morty or something. That's what well. I hear. Like, yeah. So I'm, I'm admittedly, I'm not the biggest Rick and Morty, um, aficionado, but I'm, that, that's what I've heard is this is kind of the inspiration for, for that cartoon. I did notice as well. Doc Brown is definitely rocking some pretty dope Nikes. Yeah, man. Some nice ones for the eighties, man. I was surprised. The, the, the fashion good or bad in this movie it's still so awesome. I mean, whether you're, I mean, you, you have their, their, their fifties attire or like the, the eighties. I mean, there, there's some, there's some stylish threads in this movie. I think Marty is rocking like, Oh, he's got the dope puffer vest. Yeah. On. The life preserver or the, uh, yeah. The, uh, he's, Dorky, he thinks he's, he's got like his, his Nike Cortez, like gangster shoes on. Mm-hmm. Doc Brown's rocking the high tops. Yeah, um, I was. I thought that was pretty funny. I think even Marty is wearing like a a denim jacket. As yeah, well, under the vest. Yeah, so he's he's fully layered. So you got the orangey red vest thing that he has. Then he's got a denim jacket. Underneath that, he's got a short sleeve like black and white striped shirt, and below that, 
He's got like this burgundy t-shirt. Oh yeah, okay, right. And is is he wearing suspenders as well? Yeah, or is that later? Yeah, on? no, he's. It, I'm pretty sure he still has suspenders. Pretty sure. It could be later on, but I mean, that's that's those are uh, those are his threads. I mean, it does play you know take place in uh, November, right, or October, November. So I mean, it's it's fall in in the valley. Where, where, even though this movie was obviously filmed on on set, but I mean, this movie, you know, it's it's the fall. You know, I can believe it. Right. On. Um, I thought it was interesting that when Marty arrives in let's see, in 1955, that where he lives, his address is like two miles outside of town. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a sort of interesting, I guess, just callback to, you know, suburban sprawl and yep. development and sort of, I don't know, it's, you know, not quite white flight, but I, I don't know, I thought that was an interesting sort of... Yeah, and the way that they frame it is it's supposed to be like a you know, like a, like a new up and coming, you know, neighborhood development. Then when we see in 1985, it's an absolute shithole neighborhood. Um, even the high school, which when you see in 1955, it's, it's a little bit better, but I was watching, watching the film again last night and like on the, like the out, like the, on the walls of the school, it was like smegma, like written like smegma and like other, oh, like, damn, I never noticed yeah, it, it's, it's something that you really only notice when you've seen the movie about 10,000 times, but I'm like, nice. That's just, just great graffiti, you know, in, in the, in the film. Something else I noticed about the 1955 era was that the Hill Valley sign in front of, I guess the courthouse or clock, what is it? The, the, the tower? clock tower. Yeah. The clock tower. So it had an immense number of like civic civic organizations yeah. there. There was like the Rotary, the Lions Club, the blah, like immense. Just mm-hmm. there was probably like ten, ten or so of those. Right. Which I also found kind of interesting, just and from like a standpoint of looking back, like those kind of organizations don't really exist. Yeah. That or as you know, I guess they're around in smaller the, um, towns. Yeah, I imagine like smaller smaller towns they still exist because your, your smaller towns still are kind of like the past. Yeah, uh, right. Yeah, the town I'm from, definitely. I mean, they have the Lions Club and whatever, the Rotary Club for sure. And there's definitely like Knights of Columbus and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, things like that still exist. I remember like once upon a time, back in my Navy days, I, I dated this girl and she was from like this small town called like Hagerstown, Maryland or whatever. And we went there and we ate at like the American Legion. I'm like, what the hell? I don't even know what the American... I still really don't know what it, what the American Legion really is, but... Yeah, like, and we went in there, and there were all these people, and it, it was just very, like, quintessential, like, classic, like, small-town America. I just thought it was sort of interesting in the context of Hill Valley. Have You know, Hill Valley has a mall, and it seemed, like, in 1985, the town square is kind of, like, run down, and so mm-hmm. it, they try to—you get the impression that it's more of, like— it's not just a small, small town. This is a relatively sizable California town. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I just thought that was a interesting thing to compare to nowadays. Um, let's see. So whenever, uh, whenever he shows up in the... Uh, so Marty goes into the diner there and meets our good friend... Goldie Wilson, mm-hmm. right? Mayor Goldie Wilson, giving out the good advice to George McFly. Yeah, stand up for yourself. Yeah, um, and that's one of the one of the fun things is how they they do take liberties between what 
happens in 1985 versus what it what it is in 1955 and obviously we see Goldie Wilson as mayor in 1985 but it's more it's Marty McFly that gives him the gives idea, him the idea the, exactly. that gives him the idea in the first he's like, yeah, yeah I could be mayor yep so um and then obviously one of my favorite and it's just such a, such a subtle joke but it, it's still one of my absolute favorites is the twin pine mall versus the lone pine mall at uh, the, I didn't even notice that. Either. Yeah. Damn it. So he's at the Twin Pines Mall at the beginning, and obviously Marty McFly runs over that guy's pine tree, and he's uh, like, "He's like <laughs> my pine." Uh, and then when we go back to the genius. yeah the eighties, it's now the Lone Pine uh, Mall. Damn yeah. it! That's so great. Yeah, and there are, there are other little things like that. It's just it's just so great. It's just so great. It's pretty smart. Yeah, I definitely caught him running over the pine, but I didn't make that connection. Mm-hmm. I wasn't paying that close of attention. <laughs> yeah. Um, I also thought it was funny that 50s era Doc Brown comments that so Marty shows up he's like in the radiation suit or yeah oh wait no they're maybe he's playing the video back oh right right yeah because all the uh, yeah and he mentions the radiation suit and he said oh it must be because of all the nuclear fallout yeah. all the nuclear wars and shit I thought that was funny mm-hmm. really kind of captured that 50s era like or six even 60s mm-hmm. and then when he even like the commentary as far as like when he found out that Ronald Reagan is the the president, and he's like, oh, that's why you know Ronald Reagan is you know he, he's a president. You have to get, look at on TV and and just kind of like the, just the commentary on how television has kind of changed how the tele- yeah how it would change the politics, and it has you know oh, we're absolutely. not going to get on a like a, a political kick here, but yeah, I mean just how television has changed the entire landscape of what America was decades ago to where where it is now i like that it makes mention of that kind of stuff i think it especially kind of rings true definitely it's funny to see the contrast between then and now but to see a movie like this that kind of still plays around on those edges you know Mm -hmm. just a little bit here and there it's kind of sprinkles things in that are somewhat interesting yeah there are larger in a larger context there are and in this movie i mean you you have like that little nugget there you do have you have a little a little seasoned racism in the film later on as well um with with the with the with the band and so i mean you have that um i did like i i, I did enjoy that the the band were were smoked more like you know just clam bake in the car <laughs> um, <laughs> i did too i did not remember that at all either and i definitely as a kid had no clue what the re- the reference they were making? Yeah, so that's pretty funny. Yeah, and then even to like imagine watching them, they're okay. So then I'm like thinking, okay, this jet, this band is stoned right now playing this high school concert. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Chuck Berry's cousin. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um. But yeah. Um. Even when I was a kid, I would I w- I didn't even know what it meant, obviously. But I'd in- when I'd insult somebody, I'd call him a peckerwood. <laughs> <laughs> what about what did the uh the band say or whenever they encountered the like there was going to be maybe there was a third of violence and oh yeah like, yeah that was that so it starts with he's like this don't concern uh don't con- uh this don't con- uh, concern you spook and he's like who are you calling spook peckerwood um but don't they say something else like i don't the kids are like i don't want to mess with a bunch oh of yeah reefer, yeah i don't want to mess with no addicts. reefer addicts <laughs> I have used that somehow. (laughs) 
has been one of my catchphrases for a long time. Has been reefer addicts. Yeah, reefer addicts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that. Yeah, I love that though. Did not notice that the first time around. Yeah. Well, something else that's funny too in this context, now going back and watching it, especially in this moment, um, is how rapey Biff is. Right. Even in the cafeteria at school, like, dude, yeah. you would be expelled. Yeah. If you tried. Yeah, like, he, he's like, you want it, you know, you want it. It's like, holy shit! He's like, got, yeah. he's like sitting behind her in the cafeteria, and no one's. He's like groping her. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. And then here comes like five foot three. Michael J. Fox stepping up to Thomas F. Wilson, you know, like a boss, like, all right. He's not chicken, that's for sure. No, better not call him that either. Do they reference that? In they, this? No, they don't they do don't that until the sequels, okay. yeah. Okay, I didn't think so. <clears throat> I did think it was funny, too, whenever Marty is sending George McFly over there, he's like, tell her that she's your destiny. Yeah. Like, what the fuck kind of lines mm-hmm. is he feeding him? Um. Yeah, this material and it, needs work. We're gonna have to. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's so great, Crispin's Glover when he goes and botches it. It's just so good. I it's am like, your density. Yep. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. It, I mean that line right there is like a meme. Like I'm your I'm your density. I'm your destiny. I did think it was extremely charming though. Whenever he does end up walking into the into the little diner, he's like, "Lou, give me a milk." <laughs> Chocolate. chocolate and then and it slides across slides the... it across he takes takes the gulp and then he like mm-hmm. wipes it off it's that... just money it's just so great like did they I, was that direction like what or was that just you know is that just magic on film when you do a little move like that you know what i mean it was it played so perfectly it, it plays it plays great yeah I, I don't know if that's on the page or not but yeah it just it, it it's just so great because just Obviously, George has no confidence at all, and as we see him throughout this entire film. But like that, he he's hyped up, and that little chocolate milk, you know, slide across the bar, and it's just it's great editing, and it's just it's it, it just it's perfect. And he goes over there and still botches his line. And then we get eventually Marty sucker punching Biff, mm-hmm. and Lorraine is. She's, she's very aroused. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's very she's, aroused. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely gets a little Oedipal there. Yeah. It's like Oedipal in reverse, right? I mean, or, no, I mean, it's still Oedipal. Yeah. Was, but this time it's like the mother pursuing the son, right? Yeah. Reverse Oedipal. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> uh, Redipal. <laughs> and then let's see. Um, I noticed too that, uh, Okay, so whenever Marty is running away from Biff after punching him, and then he eventually runs over the car, like he's mm-hmm. he inv- basically invented parkour yeah. stuff <laughs> in the 50s. thought that was a nice little moment. And skateboarding. <laughs> right. The look on Lorraine's face when she says she's going to find out where Calvin yeah. is from, too. The, she's like, she, she is thirsty <laughs> as all hell right there. Like, woo! Yeah. Cool, cool down, girl. Yeah. Cool down. Have a cold glass of uh, non-chocolate milk. I don't know, but I'm going to find out. Yeah, she's like, look in her eyes. Yeah. Later on, too, okay, so whenever their doc is showing him the, to scale 
to scale model. <laughs> like what the what, <laughs> what the fuck is the point of this whole scene? Like what do you, what you're trying to recreate this? What as if the model is gonna like what you're gonna recreate this time travel scenario? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it's dark. What did, what did you expect to happen? You know what I mean? Yeah, like, I just love the <gasps> right when it catches fire. Yeah, the rags or whatever. That was pretty hilarious. Again, my, I've got some my notes here. Just say Biff is an effing racist. Yeah, I mean not ra- not racist, but he that too. He's a rapist. In the car when he's like feeling up Lorraine again. Mm-hmm. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, Biff is uh, Biff Tan and not a good dude. Right. Um, when we get back to the future, I, I did want to say that the George McFly hair is exquisite. Yeah. Actually, even back in the 50s, yeah. Crispin Glover. He was rocking it, man. Yeah. Crispin Glover. What a dude. What a crazy, crazy actor. My favorite Crispin Glover role is when he plays Andy Warhol in the Doors movie. Yeah. Was it the Doors movie? Is that when yeah. he played it? Yeah. I remember, but I couldn't remember what movie that was. Yeah. Because he's like, oh, hi. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, it was a Doors film. Uh-huh. <laughs> Oh, it's great. Like they're talking about how they were in a gallery showing and there were so many people that the paintings were getting like people were bumping into the paintings and the paintings were getting smushed or something. <laughs> uh hilarious. But I have I have a kind of an anecdote here about do you think that in the future the new versions of Lorraine and George McFly they seem like they could be swingers or something? Especially in 1985, like, suburban. <laughs> I mean, I could see Lorraine being that way, but I don't know about, about George. George, you know. Uh, he's a I mean, chocolate you, milk kind of guy. Yeah, yeah. Ex- I mean, it's possible. I mean, he's, he's styling, and he's, he's, and he, and he's goosing it, and he's goosing his wife. Yeah, I mean, you know. <laughs> Marty brought out the dog and his dad. Right. He's an animal now. Mm-hmm. He's a savage. So a little a little Back to the Future trivia for you. I don't know if you. I mean, by now it's pretty common knowledge, but I don't know like if you if you found this on your research. As far as now, Marty, uh, now Michael J. Fox was a, was originally cast as Marty, but he wasn't going to do it, or they didn't go for him because of the fact that he was shooting yeah, he family, family ties. Family ties, yeah. And so the actor that they used and shot some footage, you're familiar, Eric Stoltz. Eric Stoltz. So that's what people know. But do you know who was originally cast as Doc Brown? Ooh, I don't remember off the top. John of Lithgow. Yeah, yeah. A little. You can put that in your file. That one away for for trivia night. That was um, actually a good segue because I wanted to jump into the acting and sure. the film. And I think so. They actually did end up shooting some footage with Stoltz and I think some of it has survived into yeah. the actual mm-hmm. somebody the actor that plays Biff said that maybe the punch that the sucker punch in the in the diner is actually Stoltz's arm it could be he uh, said that they did like they didn't reshoot that particular scene the when Marty jumps into the DeLorean after Doc has been shot oh yeah that that's too. that's Stoltz uh but yeah like um Zemeckis and I think Gail, uh, the other the other like writer producer of the film, they just said that he, you know he was just he was a little too intense and 
like the whole thing with the skateboard. It was it wasn't you know Eric uh, Stoltz was just a little bit more of a serious actor where he couldn't really he couldn't really get that that same type of thing that uh, Michael J. Fox brought to the table. The boy next door. Yeah, exactly. Extraordinaire. And what what's great about it is, dude, how hardworking Michael J. Fox was because he would shoot he he'd shoot Family Ties during the day. Yeah. Yeah. And then nighttime, boom, go over to the studio and, and shoot Back to the Future. Pretty crazy. He was yeah. like 23 at the time, I think. Yeah, I mean, that every high school student in in the 80s were, were at least 25, right? I mean, yeah. But uh, what about fucking Christopher Lloyd, though? Wow. Yeah. Like, what kind of person is Christopher Lloyd? Like, I want to get to, I want to, like, look this guy up and find out everything there is available. Yeah. Because, I'm- Wow. He holy shit! I never really. I mean, you know, Doc is one of those iconic characters, but wow, does he not bring him to life? Mm-hmm. To the, I mean, he's iconic. Yeah, it's just yeah, and there's no way around it. It's. I mean, you had seen potential with Christopher Lloyd. I mean, obviously, you know, he was he was on Taxi. Uh, he was in One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. You know, so he had been in stuff. He'd been in stuff, obviously, before. But, I mean, I, I, you got to think that this is probably Christopher Lord's like just absolute best role. Definitely. I mean, the one, the one hundred and twenty-one gigawatts, mm-hmm. one hundred and twenty-one gigawatts. Like, was he on coke or probably? The, where did he derive all of this energy? Mm-hmm. God, he had some just. He just sold it so well. Mm-hmm. It was the perfect. I mean, the cookie cutter, not cookie cutter, but the, he set the die. I think for the. For the mad scientist and yeah. films moving forward. And obviously with the Rick and Morty mm-hmm. reference. Like I didn't even make that connection until somebody mentioned that to me earlier today. I was like, oh, that yeah, that's kind of true. Yeah. And it's funny because I wanted to talk about this in writing, but I'll just go ahead and talk about it now. It's like the doc is so concerned about disrupting time and everything, sort of. But then he's not really like he says all of that stuff, but then his actions don't follow through because he... He ends up reading know, reading the reading what tele, the telegram or the and that no it was, wasn't the telegram it was, it was just the letter that he had written he had uh, that Marty had written Doc and just you know like uh, he after Marty were to leave he Doc would find it and he would read the letter and it would say hey on the night that I go back in time you get shot by Libyan terrorists <laughs> Libyan terrorists of course uh, so go ahead and make sure that you protect yourself in some capacity but and then you know doc obviously tapes the letter back together the telegram comes in back to the okay. future too i was that's what i was confused cause i was like wait didn't the doc tear up the letter but he yeah. t- he tapes it back together is that the yeah he, is that yeah, the official exactly line? yeah you you okay. see it when after because he still gets shot but yeah. he's wearing a bulletproof vest and he pulls out of his jacket the the letter and it's just taped together and it's just like just movie magic. It's just like, oh, so great. But yeah, I, I mean, he obviously is contradictory of some of his of his actions as far as not disrupting the space-time continuum, but obviously he, he still does. But it's a movie, and it's convenient in the plot to say, no, don't do this. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it's... I mean, he, he's a, he's a mad scientist, so he's obviously not he's not perfect by any means. He lost his 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 family's money. Um, you you see a mansion in 1955, and 
supposedly burned down. Yeah, and then 1985, he's living next to a Burger King or whatever it is. I did notice, like, again, going back to how the doc is so, like, he's smart, but he doesn't, like, he's not grounded in sort of what's exactly happening because whenever they're testing out the DeLorean and whenever it comes back with, I think, Einstein in it, like they're in the path of it. <laughs> like, yeah. They almost get killed by it. It's like, oh, you move out of the way. Like, Yeah, but that looked really good. <laughs> uh, that was hilarious. It's like, what what are you doing? Like, why would you think it was smart to stand in the same route yeah. that the freaking thing is returning? And I don't know, just thought that was hilarious. So what about, um, this is a bit role in this film, but the older brother, Lorraine's older brother in the 50s, is the same actor that was in, was it The Wonder Years? Yeah, so Lorraine's younger brother um, is Fred Savage's older brother from The Wonder Years. Jason Hervey is the yeah, actor. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm, yep. Okay, because I was like... what? What's a rerun? <laughs> right? I was trying to think if that was the same actor, because I was like, what? I know I recognize this guy from another show where yep. he's pretty much the exact yep, the Wonder same Years. role, basically. And it was The Wonder Years. Yeah, and he was also in a, an, a forgotten 80s film called The Monster Squad. I think it's... I noticed this, too, like, whenever... And this is Michael J. Fox we're talking about in terms of how good he was. Something that I thought was pretty funny was whenever he's repeating to 1950s Doc Brown about you know, the, the flux capacitor, which makes time travel possible. Like he's like repeating the doc Brown dialogue mm-hmm. essentially, but mm-hmm. he's kind of like, it's almost like we we're in on this joke because he's realizing how absurd the sounds almost like with the audience too. Right. You know what I mean? It's like with yeah. the, he's sort of the audience representation to a degree mm-hmm. and kind of like, I don't know that like little ironic, I don't know. I thought that was an interesting little sort of detail. Yeah. Of irony kind of fitting in there. And I almost like break. It's not quite a fourth wall break, but it's sort of in that direction. Teetering. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you just sent this a second ago, but I do want to just kind of like focus on this for a second. How awesome was Michael J. Fox in like his heyday? I mean, just fantastic. And whether it was playing like the Uber Republican on Family Ties, but, you know, playing this character, playing. Uh, Teen Wolf. And, oh God, Teen Wolf. <laughs> I mean, he had such a great, wow. great run, and then all the way, you know, through Doc Hollywood and then Spin City. I mean, he he had such a great, great run, and just you. I mean, it's Michael J. Fox, but he, for a, a very, very small dude, he can he can seriously command some amazing like screen presence. Just when he's on camera you you want to look at him and see what he's going to do just really really gifted actor later on in the 50s whenever whenever he's explaining to doc how things work or whatever he's like the christopher lloyd it works (laughs) (laughs) like he brings the fucking energy man Mm -hmm. it's like what is this guy he's drinking monsters or what (laughs) how did he do it I mean, it was 80s. Christopher Lord was probably seriously coked, you know, for for that film. 
that in the 100 121 gigawatts i mean it's insane uh-huh. how do you where did this energy come from it's freaking incredible it's so the over the top campiness of it is great it just but it works it works so well and it's just so great after like when he's just completely just blown away at 1.21 gigawatts he grabs like a like an eight by ten picture of Thomas Edison. He's like, he just Tom. <laughs> uh, another little acting note in this film that I was like, wait a minute, is Billy Zane in this film? Yeah, and you're goddamn right. Yeah, <laughs> Billy Zane. You better listen to your friend Billy Zane. Billy uh. Zane, greaser Billy Zane with like, I don't know if it's a toothpick or a match that he's chewing on. I think it's a match actually, because I think. That was his name. Like, I think that's actually his character's name was Match or something like that. <laughs> Match. Uh, because, I mean, your goons have to have 1950s names, right? I think one of them. Pa- posse. I think, I think one of the goons, were uh, his nickname was 3D. Oh, yeah, with the 3D gl- yeah. glasses. Yeah, and I think, I, think Billy Zane's nick, I think Billy Zane's name in the movie was Match. That's hilarious. I'm, I have to go back and look. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm... While you're talking, I'm gonna definitely like fact check that because I I, I think I remember. Just one one thing we know for sure randomly. is that uh, Billy Zane is a cool dude. There's no <laughs> question about that fact. Dude, Billy Zane is a cool dude. I mean, he terrified the the heck out of me in Dead Calm. I don't know if you ever saw that movie. No, I did not. Dude, yeah, if you ever get your uh, get a chance, it's not the greatest film in the movie, but Billy Zane is terrifying. It has Sam Neill. Nicole Kidman and Billy Zane, and he's just this crazy dude, and uh, it's Sam Neill and Julie Roberts on a yacht in like the the South Pacific, and he he aboards their their yacht because he uh, everybody on his boat was dead or whatever, but you've come to find out it's Billy Zane that killed everybody on his boat, and now he's trying to kill Sam Neill and Nicole Kidman. Interesting. Very young Nicole Kidman still rocking her Australian accent. Damn, this is like late eighties. Yeah. Early 90s, kind of? Yeah, okay. if you get your hands on it. Like. We haven't talked about Leah Thompson yet. No. She was, of course, pretty outstanding. I didn't write I didn't write much about her, but I feel like she was, I don't know. Amazing? She was amazing. She was good. Um, but I didn't really, there wasn't really just those standout moments other than when she, the moments where she had, <laughs> you know, expressing her attraction to her own son were the ones that kind of stand out the most, honestly. Yeah. Um, so Leah Thompson, I I loved her, yeah, obviously in nineteen fifty five, but I really loved her just alcoholic vodka throwing the the cake on the table, your uncle Jailbird Joey, you know, uh, Miss Parole. Didn't make parole. Didn't make parole. <laughs> and and just I, I love when she's talking about what she was like when I was in high school, I didn't chase. I would a, call a boy. Yeah, chase a boy or sit in a parked car with a boy. And then you find out she's she like was drinking. a freak. She's drinking and smoking and shit. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that was so great. Uh, damn it, I talk about this in the writing, but whenever she's like on Marty's case, she's like, "Oh, gee, Marty, you sound like my mother." <laughs> that, that was gold. Mm-hmm. That was pure comedy gold, right? Right there. Now I don't know if you have any idea or like know the backstory of the film and how or how the movie came to be. But the the screenwriter for the film got the really the inspiration for this movie when he was visiting his family and for what I don't know why but he I guess he was in like the basement and he came across like his his like his father's like old high school yearbook and found out that his father was actually like the class president and he's like man 
Like, I don't even know who my class president. Yeah, like, I don't even know who my class president was. Shit, would my class president get along with my dad? And just kind of, like, got oh, yeah. that. And then his mother talked about, like, how she she was a virgin and, like, a good, you know, good lady. And then he finds out that his mom was actually, like, a freak. Just so the, the movie inspiration. So his parents were swingers. Yeah, his apparently. parents. There you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> inspiration there. But uh, what else? Do you have any uh, other acting tidbits you want to call out before we kind of? Yeah, I mean, you've on? got the you got the commander from Top Gun uh, as Strickland, the vice principal. Oh yeah, <laughs> fucking Strickland. Yeah, slacker. I love he, it. I love that he had Strick in his name. Like yeah, like exactly, Strick, exactly. You know I and mean? they really and then when communicate he could, a lot with that. Mm-hmm. And then when he, they were in the fifties, he was still bald. I didn't understand though. He was like so hostile to McFly. Like McFly was seemed harmless. You know what I mean? He's a slacker. That's 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 the whole thing. But he that's the thing to me. Like this kid does not. He does not fit. I don't know. Maybe the '50s version of slackers is different than what I'm picturing a slacker being. You know what I mean? Right. I don't know uh, what a slacker really was in the in the context of this film, but it was something that pissed Strickland off. So, and his father was a. Uh, just, you know, Marty was just like his dad. Any other performances or or actors that I've missed? Um, no, I think I think we kind of covered everybody. We 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 mentioned Christopher Lloyd. Uh, do, 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 do. Yeah, I think I think we we've talked about everybody other really than other Je- than Biff really. Yeah, other than Biff and, Who was and Jennifer Parker really. We haven't really talked yeah. about Jennifer. And the only reason why she's that's Marty McFly's. I didn't. I kind of glossed over because she's only in the beginning and the very end of the film, and she really basically is in the film for kind of like expositional purposes because she writes her phone number of where she's going to be staying. But on the other side of it the is clock tower is article a, right? Is a clock tower article so. Her, she's kind of in the or the movie. flyer that they yeah, handed out. Yeah, so she's kind of like a a plot device in the film in 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 that sense. But she's also become kind of something of legend because she wasn't in the sequels. They recast her as Elizabeth Shue, and it wasn't that Jennifer Parker was a bad actress. It's just she was unable to to yeah. There was a conflict like the, within her family. Oh, her, yeah, her mother had got cancer. Or something. Yeah, so she wasn't able to. She's looking after her instead. Mm-hmm. But quite frankly, I actually prefer the original Jennifer over oh, yeah, I do Elizabeth Shue. I agree. Totally. But uh, moving on, there's uh, there's not a lot to talk about for me for cinematography, but I will say... What? I've got... Yeah, go for oh, it. Oh, shit. Well, good. I'm, I'm glad you brought something because uh, what I thought was extremely brilliant about the film is the opening sequence with all of the mechanized stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's... I'm pretty sure, if I'm not mistaken, this was all like a single take. Yeah. We follow through this whole process. Yeah, that's really these, what I wanted to talk about. That opening shot is awesome. These I mean, gears and things turning, and that was so well done, and it really took its time and was a great storytelling device and kind of giving you insight into into Doc Brown and sort of all of that. And just that was really extremely well done. Yeah, and the, the there's the... I mean, there is. It's just a single take, and you go around, and you find out a little bit about Doc Brown's world, and you get a, you get a really tasty bit of exposition just with the, the TV turning on, and you're finding out about stolen plutonium. And then Marty comes in and kicks his skateboard, and you see the stolen plutonium. That and, was genius. Yep. That was genius, right? And Marty doesn't notice, which I thought as well was... That was great, like, Hitchcockian kind yeah. of level mm-hmm. storytelling that was 
there, yeah, there, there are a couple just absolutely just great, great shots in the film. I do love the the sweeping shot when he is in the Hill Valley like town square, and you're looking around, and, and you, you see the clock tower, and 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 you see how uh, the diner isn't the yoga studio that it was in 1980, uh, 85, or aerobics or whatever that was and just a couple yeah aerobics is definitely 80s yeah. right and the the movie theater so I, I i love the the sweeping sweeping shot with the uh with the score and that's something i think we definitely have to talk about is just the fantastic score that this movie has the and where you talked about the the um oh shoot what's the another another scene that I just, I think is just really, really cool. I think really what I'm blown away was just with whether it's like the, the sound editing or sound mixing or just the editing in general, the, the whole scene where doc is on the clock tower and he, you know, and you've got the DeLorean coming and doc is trying to get (laughs) attach everything. And he finally gets it connected and he slides down Grabs the two things. I'm 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 literally like <laughs> you, demonstrating. Uh, demonstrating once again, just how my podcasting fails me, or I'm doing things uh, as opposed to saying them. But like connects it just in time, and the DeLorean goes. So, in fact, I think this. Uh, so just like the editing that they do, and then I I, I just love it. I, I love it. In fact, I think even though it's not cinema, uh, cinematography, I think it was like sound editing or sound mixing. But the movie actually won an Oscar for it. Nice. Yeah. I did think um, overall that the editing was quite well done. It was very, you know, it didn't call a lot of attention to itself mm-hmm. in the most cases, but I think one particularly artistic set of editing was whenever Marty was in the opening, whenever he's playing his guitar, mm-hmm. and all the little cutaways of him, like, plugging in. Yeah. Plugging everything in. It would have cutaways as well to, like, the you know he's turning the knot the knobs and shit like that and everything flicking over yeah all of that stuff that was that was so well done mm-hmm. and then you see the that amp was really smart. that is like the size yeah. of the whole freaking house but yeah that in terms of editing and cinematography i really liked those choices and thought that was that opening whole sequence was probably the most um, mm-hmm. sort of artistic flourish of the film from that kind of standpoint I still and and he's done a lot of films since, but and uh, Zemeckis has used basically the same same crew. I mean, so like the, the screenwriter helped him with other films that he's done, and like the, the uh, cinematographer has done the same type of stuff. But I think yeah, just everything. I think this everything worked right for Zemeckis in this movie, which is huge because the previous movie that he did, oh shoot, what was it? Um, Oh man, I can't I can't believe I just forgot. But it was a bit it was it was a bust in so like this was like his final like his his like final like one here because he had made like a couple like just absolute flops that just didn't do anything. So he was able to get like Spielberg to I think like executive produce it. I don't even think like Spielberg is credited for like an actual like producer uh credit in the film. I, I- I think he does actually. I think he do, is in the credits because I noticed that early on whenever I was watching the film that Spielberg's name came across, mm-hmm. which I thought was interesting. I don't remember that association at all. Yeah, but it kind of makes sense. Really fits in the canon of the sort of stuff that Spielberg really mm-hmm. goes for. It looks like *Romancing the Stone*. Or wait, no, that was. I think that was after. 
used cars used cars yeah so used cars was i want to say it was a a film with uh oh dude snake um and captain ron kurt russell yeah so used cars was just a like a kurt russell like vehicle um weird pun but (laughs) and it, it did nothing it just i think he also did like 1941 or something like that as well and that was another just like yeah, utter, that utter was a flop. Spielberg, yeah. Spielberg was also involved in 1941, mm-hmm. yeah. So after, yeah, after doing that and, and this, it, this was, this was it. And the movie obviously was a huge success. And I think, I think a lot of it, obviously like the, the story is great and the acting is great, but I, I think having, Mar- uh, having Michael J. Fox attached to it is something that gave it an extra life that the movie really in the end needed because I, I, I think and nothing against Eric Stoltz. I loved him. Some kind of wonderful, which, you know, he I thought he was great in the eighty, you know, that eighties film and other films that he's been in uh in since. He's a he's a good actor, but he's not Marty McFly. Any other cinematography or editing related points you'd like to uh go over? No, I don't think so. I the <laughs> Of, I uh, I do also like when he did when he did get into 1955. Again, just the editing from uh, about to crash into the the little picture studio into crashing into the barn. Right? The barn. Well, the scarecrow first, okay. and then veers and then crashes into the barn. So. I guess we'll move into some uh, sort of miscellaneous things. Some of this we already talked about because I was going to talk about, you know, Stoltz being the original lead or at least, you know, them having shot actual footage with. Right. Um, I did want to also mention, you know, I mentioned Zemeckis, who, you know, obviously you mentioned some of his films, but I think Forrest Gump is probably the big one. That's probably his what? That's maybe his most successful yeah, I would say, box yeah. office-wise. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also... He did. He was involved with Tales from the Crypt a lot. Yeah, he was. Some, a lot that, of great episodes. Yeah, no, actually. that that was like that was his baby. Yeah, like he he was a big big what to do when it came with the uh, Tales from the Crypt. I need to go back and watch some of those because some of them those were really yeah quite well done. Yeah, yeah, some of those were really good. Um, the music on the in the film was mostly or the score was. <sighs> Love it. It's uh, Alan Silvestri, who actually still does, still works in Hollywood doing Mm -hmm. scores, I think including Infinity War, but I mean, he's got a huge list of films that he's worked on. Where John John Williams is kind of like Spielberg's dude, uh, Alan Silvestri is Zemeckis' guy, you know, he's done all of his stuff, and it was cool that, even though I don't think the movie was really fantastic, Ready Player One, I thought it was cool that Spielberg actually used Alan Silvestri for a film as opposed to John Williams. So, cause you've got the DeLorean in the movie and you've got a couple little nods to the, uh, the back to the future score in that movie. So I thought that, I thought that was kind of cool. Also, Huey Lewis, uh, Huey Lewis, baby, Huey Lewis and the news show up. You Dude, know. I've got this, I've got this album on vinyl and it's still, it, it, it holds up that, I mean, there are two, maybe three, Huey Lewis and the News songs on on that record. I, when that music comes in and you know you're skateboarding, he's Marty's catching a ride on things, and you know I'm having a lot of fun at that moment. Like it's mm-hmm. oh, this is a fun. It's got that really good strong kind of guitar riff that sets it off. 
you know what I mean? That yeah. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> oh, and, and shit, the horns. We, didn't, we didn't even mention that Huey Lewis has a cameo. Oh, I didn't even know that. He has a cameo when? Oh when my God. He's the guy, when, so when they're playing Power of Love, like uh, his band, the Pinheads, when they're playing the Power of Love, the guy, like the, the judge that looks to his side and put, holds up the, the microphone, sorry, you're just too, too dang loud. Yeah, uh, that's, that's Huey Lewis. God damn it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm upset with myself. I did think it was kind of, this is like, this is not really a nitpick, but it's kind of a nitpick. I noticed in that scene too, like this definitely looks like a studio lot, mm-hmm. which I thought was interesting because like just from a production standpoint, stuff like that will is more apparent to me now. Now that I kind of like, I look for that detail yeah. a lot in movies. So Now also, uh, just because that was something I wanted to mention with like the cinematography, the filmmaker, or the, the guy that did that, um, he obviously has worked with, with Zemeckis a lot, but he also... And when you look at this movie and you look back, you can kind of see like, okay, yeah, he really is kind of like famous for like horror films. Like he did The Thing, he did, oh, really? he did Halloween. Basically, he's worked with Zemeckis and John, John Carpenter. Carpenter. Yeah. So he also did like Big Trouble in Little China. When you look at Big oh, Trouble, man. so you can, you can, when you watch <laughs> Back to the Future, one. you can kind of see like, oh yeah, yeah, I, I, I get that. I can, I can see, I see his vision a little bit okay. in, that, in that sense. Nice. That is another one of my all-time favorite '80s movies. Big Trouble. Kurt, Kurt Russell. Dude, yes. Come on, man. Kurt, Kurt Russell's Russell. an absolute god. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the checks in the mail, partner. Dude, that might be a movie we have to break down. <laughs> I am totally down with with uh, tackling that one. Yeah. Because it's so much fun. Oh, Big like Trouble. This movie. So yeah, it's kind of like. Yep. It's got that fun adventure, but a little comedic tone, a little bit of drama, a little bit of romance, mm-hmm. and without really being. And you know. without really ever taking itself too seriously, yeah. you know, there, there's something still, that's what, what, one of the things that makes the movie so endearing is even though there's a lot of heavy shit that's going on and there's a little bit of social commentary, like nuggets that they piece in it. Right. It doesn't, it doesn't take itself too seriously. And, and that's why I think the movie succeeds so well, because there is this level of innocence in it. Yeah. And you, you've got other movies that, 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 you know, Zemeckis did or, um, Richard Donner in the eighties, you know, that he was, he was great at, I mean, you look at Goonies. I mean, there were like these certain movies that came out in that era where there's, they've got these great adventure stories, great character development, really, really good stakes, but they've survived the test of time because there, there, there's just something endearing about, about, about the film itself. I mean, so yeah. I thought it was funny that Jennifer writes her number down on a piece of paper as just sort of this like now it seems kind of funny in our age with you know you would probably just text at this point right yeah and just I don't know that little anachronistic sort of throwback mm-hmm. to that era I thought that was kind of funny but it were like that's another bit that's so smart about this film is the way that it sort of tackled exposition and I don't know if it's really it's kind of exposition-y, but it's not. You know what I mean? Sort of how they set up all of the things that, in the 1985 timeline era, sets up so many of the references that we see when he goes back to 55, which is so smartly done. And it just it feels naturally like it's part of the story. Like Maybe that's the better way to describe it. Is That's such a brilliant little writing flourish yeah. to like, oh yeah, we'll have her write her number on the back of the flyer representing the Th- clock tower that Mark... Marty will recognize later. That's just really great setup. Mm-hmm. And now, it, and 
it's not super complex or anything, but the, the screenplay for this film is brilliant. It was nominated for an Oscar. I did uh, not know that yeah, either. Yeah. Damn. So it didn't win, but it was nominated. And there, I mean, it's genius. Yeah, there, you know, obviously there, there are holes in it, but you can pick apart any movie and find numerous holes. But, and you mentioned like, you know, kind of like the idea of exposition. I kind of, I kind of like use plot devices as, you know, as opposed to really exposition because nothing, it, it's, everything is so natural. It, it's not, it's not cheap. I, I don't think there's really anything, there's no wasted space in this film. Everything that they use is set up really well and the payoff is fantastic. Pacing is great. Mm-hmm. There's no drags at all. I mean, it's a really quick movie to watch. And, and and I think the movie checks in just under two hours or so, right? But yeah. it's it's you you're going from the moment that Marty, you know, blasts himself uh with the with with the amp at, you know, Doc's house, we're we're going, you know, and it's we're we're getting plot and we're getting we're getting you know, we're we're finding a little bit about these characters. And it's just, I mean, yeah, the, the holes in the film are why are Marty and Doc friends, you know, and, you know, a couple of other things that we've, we've mentioned before, but they're completely irrelevant to the the story that we're watching. And on my very first podcast uh, with you, I think I talked about how I see Marty McFly as, you know, kind of a superhero. And that, that's really, that's really still how I look at him is the fact that, yeah, he's trying to save his own life, you know, his own ass, but his superpower, obviously he's got a time machine, but the whole thing is to, the movie's about, about family. And that's really at the, what the movie is at its core is trying to, and at the eighties. And that's why I think the movie also works really, really well is you had that whole dysfunctional family aspect of that was going on in the eighties. We are no longer in, you know, the, the, the cold war, you know, we're, we're, we're in a different, different environment. And, you know, you had the, the transition from baby boomers to Gen X. And so there, there was a lot going on in, the, in this whole Reagan era and the movie just does a really great job of kind of like capturing that, that, that nuance and where like the whole idea of him saving his family is also saving kind of saving the world from the American family, saving the American family. Exactly. From the, or like, I don't, that's almost the, it's sort of a little bit reactionary now. It seems in the context too, though, of like "Make America Great Again" is like this callback to like the '50s era. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? I just had that thought. I don't know. It's kind of interesting. But we find that 1950s uh, America was not a perfect place. Right. Uh, we've got we've got yeah, rapists that sheen, right? and uh, racism, alcoholics, alcoholics, smokers, yeah, slackers, mm-hmm. <laughs> street toughs like Biff, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And by the way, I, I did uh, I did look. I, I can't remember if I mentioned Billy Zane. His character Billy was Zane. was named Match. Like, what is it? If this guy's walking around with a match in his mouth. He could yeah. fall down and choke. Yeah. Or if it's one of those ready to strike matches. You yeah, know yeah, I mean? yeah, yeah, yeah. He could set something on fire. They they land in manure later on that could have been, that could have exploded. Yeah. Nitrogen. Yeah, landed <laughs> in manure later on. I fucking hate manure. Um. But uh, let's see. The last sort of miscellaneous thing I want to talk about, and I know this is something that's near and dear to your heart, is the DeLorean and how fucking cool this was in the 80s. But, like, looking back, this car looks kind of lame a little bit, other than the fact that the, like, the doors open upwards. Like yeah. A, like a billionaire's doors should open yeah. up like this. Dude, like I, this. I love DeLoreans, and I will... 
I will own one one day. Nice. Um, by the way, I don't know if you know this, but Delor- uh, DMC, DeLorean Motor Company, they actually now make watches. And if that'll probably be the closest thing to an actual DeLorean I ever get is probably like the DeLorean watch. But um, a, little, a little true story, a little segue. When my wife and I were married, we actually were married in front of a building that looks very, very... That, uh, that looks exactly like the clock tower. And my mom was able to pull a few strings as she she went to high school with somebody that actually still owns a DeLorean, was able to get a DeLorean on the scene. So when my cat when my when Catherine and I got out of the out of the church and went went outside, we had we, we saw a DeLorean like parked right in front of the clock tower and that was pretty cool. To date I think that was still probably like the like the coolest surprise. I, I rarely get shocked or uh, speechless but that was a really cool moment but DeLorean's a badass they're really cool I think this I don't even know. though they're made of like aluminum or like tinfoil I don't think it was was it you that was telling me about whenever they were screening um, Ready Player One actually at the Alamo Draft House I think they're on Lamar that they had the, there's a guy that owns a DeLorean here in town I think somehow he might even be involved with the movie somehow okay. or he or it wasn't the movie me. business and so they had this guy like pull up in his delorean to the screening of the film That's and they cool. were like doing a commercial or something and they kept screwing up the timing so he kept having to like come back around that's funny to pull up because they were like trying to time it perfectly to where he like shows up at this certain queue and he gets out of the delorean mm-hmm. no i i didn't know that i do have a guy that lives in my building that has a delorean as well oh well have you ever talked to him about it? Once, just like in the elevator, and you know, he, he kind of brushed it off like, ah, no big deal. Because he's usually, I want to say, like on a motorcycle. And he's just like this very unassuming, the guy's like, I don't, I don't even know how he fits in the DeLorean. He's like 6'10". <laughs> um, when when my wife and I got to sit in the DeLorean, I'm, I'm, I remember thinking, man, this thing is small. So I can't imagine what it's like for him. But, uh transitioning into back into writing and i have it's kind of funny that it did end up winning so much or getting nominated for a best screenplay because that's what most of my notes are on is Mm -hmm. on the writing um and primarily think you know what i mean again talk that opening sequence that doesn't have a lot of dialogue at all or anything but it reveals so much about the setting and the story without that and i just thought that was brilliant um some of the things there's like reference to the doc brown's house burning down Mm -hmm. the radio plays and indicates that it's 1985 right um just a really cool single you know single shot take that was just really really cool i noticed too that it felt like the film really sort of it took its time in that especially at the beginning and like let things sort of breathe to whereas now it feels like a lot of movies they want to like you want to hook the audience like right away. Like there right. has to be like this really quick expositionary, like huge sort of thing happens right away to lure you in. And this film had, took more of a, you know, it kind of worked you in. It kind of set you up really mm-hmm. nicely in a way that was, I don't know, really subtle and yeah. And artful. Sure. Um, <clears throat> again, I noted that the way that the radioactive, material is um, sort of reference with Marty's skateboard hitting that 
again, mm-hmm. just another example of, of what I'm talking about there. Um, so I already mentioned this, that Strickland was really aggressive right off the bat, grabbing Marty and calling him a slacker. I guess this, though, is just kind of giving us an insight into who Marty is really quickly, too. Um, yeah. Setting, you know, setting audience expectations about what kind of guy Marty is, sort of a, you know what I mean? Like he's a little bit of a troublemaker, kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, again, the, the references to the clock tower, setting up the 1955 era stuff. Um, during the, when they're having dinner, they reference the enchantment under the sea dance. I think mm-hmm. the daughter references that again, setting up that, that scene later on in the film, um, doc telling the story about how he invents the flux capacitor so that Marty can later retell the that yep. story to doc was really cool. Um, talk about, let's see. I thought it was hilarious later on whenever Marty is in the 50s and he gets hit by a car by uh, Lorraine's father. Another one of these kids. <laughs> and when he runs out, yeah, he tells the wife, like, another one of these kids has jumped in front of my car. Yep. <laughs> and why are they jumping in front of the car? Right. Because they're all, like, peeping Toms, checking out. Seriously. Is that Lorraine? Is that, like, who we're... Yeah, I think so, actually. Like, that's who they're I'm all checking pretty out. pretty sure who that's the implication. Yeah, that everybody is, you know... Uh, Lorraine's a little floozy that leaves her window open. And, right, she's and, got a show going on every night before cams. Yeah. What were you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> before webcams, man. Um, but I thought it was also funny, or really well done, how they made the joke later on about... Okay, so Marty leaves the house. He's like, runs out, basically... And the grandpa, the or the dad oh, is God. like, yeah. yeah. If you ever have rain, if you ever have a kid like that, I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna disown you. Yeah, yeah. That's like one of my favorite. I actually wrote it down just so I wouldn't botch it. But the and the the delivery of the well, the grandfather or Lorraine's father is just so perfect. Like, he's an idiot. Comes from <laughs> right? upbringing. His uh, parents yes, are probably yes, idiots too. Yes, <laughs> yes. You got it. That was so brilliant. That was really well done. Really funny. Pretty. Pretty sharp writing there, I think. Um, let's see. Um, I do. I would. I would really, really hate myself if I didn't at least mention one of my all-time favorite lines. And it's it's not even really a big deal line, but it's. And you don't even see Biff say it. I think you like hear him say it off camera. But the the line is. I have, I have your car towed all the way to the house, all the way to your house, and all you have for me is light beer. <laughs> right, and is, is he drinking a Miller Lite? Yeah, I, th- I think it's a Miller Lite. <laughs> also, one other thing. Uh, actually, it's gone. Never mind. Forget it. Um, there's a great, again, uh, almost a fourth wall break is whenever Doc says "Back to the Future," and he's like, "We're going back to the future," and he's like. Yeah. Almost points at the audience, and the look on his face mm-hmm. is also so great. It's perfect. His eyes sort of wander. He's like, uh. Mm-hmm. But I thought that the it was a little bit absurd that they would have this subplot of him trying to convince the parents to fall in love to some degree. Like I get it, but it's kind of like, uh, looking back, it's sort of, it's kind of out of, it's out of the doc's wheelhouse, you know what I mean? Like it's and it's funny too. He kind of leaves it all up to Marty to like, you, you Marty, you've got to get your parents back together. <laughs> like it's all on him. Mm-hmm. Like what's the deal with the doc? Is he 
Is he like asexual? Is he like what's his story <laughs> of romance? You know what I mean? Hey Doc, what's your story, dude? Right. What's going on, man? Doc had some great lines like as well though when he's talking to Marty about the dance. He calls it a um a rhythmic ceremonial yeah, yeah. ritual, which was pretty also brilliant writing. Freaking hilarious. Christopher Lloyd nails it. Um, when Lorraine comes into, and even when he doesn't say something, just how he's just brilliant. When Lorraine comes into like the garage and they've got the DeLorean covered up and she's kind of hitting on Marty in front of, in in front of Doc and Doc is just kind of like leaning against the DeLorean. He's right behind him at one point. I was like, that is so awkward. Yeah. And he's just, just, just creeping over listening to what's going on. And he, he doesn't say anything. He's right. just he's just there and just looking. Yeah, he's like, what? I think it, then he's like, I think your mother has developed infatuated yeah. feelings for you or something like or fatuous feelings. Your mom has a hots for me? Precisely. <laughs> um, a little subtle scene where the uh, the police officer, how uh, Doc blackmails or uh, bribes him rather, bribes him. He just gives him, gives him some cash where like the... Uh, the the police officer's like, yeah, you have a permit for that? And he's like, oh, uh, I think so. And he, the, the cops are clearly on the take. He just gives him money. Damn, uh, I didn't notice that. Yep. I was wondering how he convinced him. He just gave him money. Interesting. I missed that somehow. Um, Marty going ham on the guitar. Yeah. The dance as well. Yeah. Just like mm-hmm. going so over the top with it and like freaking everyone out. But the guy... It, like you mentioned earlier, is uh, Chuck Berry's cousin. Yeah, Marvin Berry. <laughs> playing, because he was playing Johnny B. Good, which is Chuck Berry's, you know, probably most famous hit, right? Another thing, I was like, what are the odds that he's going to hit the wire at the precise moment the lightning strikes and it's at 85, 88 miles an hour? You know what I mean? Well, he had it timed. He like. He, oh, yeah, he did time it he, out. Like, right. He had the whole... Every that's why we get that scaled model is like at, at exactly ten oh three, you know, you'll you leave this point, boom, and you get there at when the clock tower strikes and oh god, I love that. It's just the with the music and the editing and you have you you have Doc uh trying to save the day and and you know, and, and Marty uh driving in the DeLorean. Oh, it's just it, it's just such great classic uh blockbuster stuff, but Blockbuster stuff done well. Um, again, towards the end, the classic roads where we're going. We don't need roads. Just iconic. Yep. Just brilliant. And then the DeLorean. That's just, like a meme now at this yeah. point. It and, really is, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And then the DeLorean just, you know, it, it takes off and flies away. He had some dope gear, too. Um, future Doc with, like, those sunglasses, the... They were like a visor, <laughs> mm-hmm. sort of. There was pretty dope. His tie, his like silk kind of like see-through? yellow jacket, his see-through tie. Yeah, yeah, like a see-through tie. Or was that Back to the Future too? I can't I remember. Know what, but yeah, his tie, Doc's tie was see-through for sure. I I liked his gear, man. He was yeah, wearing some fresh shit. Yeah. Again. Um, the last thing that I kind of had in my notes was just talking about. It was interesting from a story sort of cycle perspective, how we start out with this, you know what I mean? We start out with this problem that Marty, I guess, winds up going back to the past. And then we wind up 
you know what I mean? Where we wind up is back to that same place where there's another conflict immediately at the end of the film. Mm, mm -hmm. It was interesting in the sense that like a lot of film, you know what I mean? Like you return to that neutral state and then there's another inciting incident that creates you, takes you off on another adventure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which I thought was kind of an interesting, you got to launch that franchise. Right. But, uh, anything else in terms of writing that you wanted to mention we didn't cover? I mean, I, I, we, I think we've, I think we've covered a good chunk of it. I could probably, I literally can go on and on and on about this movie and uh, the screenplay. I, I I just adore it. I, I I just think the, the writing is fantastic and the way that it's captured on, on screen is it's just, it's screenwriting by numbers in this case. I mean, it does everything. It does everything right in this sense. I mean, movies like this, I, 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 I enjoy. I love a movie. I love the, like the films that we have covered, which are, for the most part, completely anti-structure of of a movie like this. But yeah, for sure. Sometimes it's really, really refreshing to go back and 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 watch movies like this. Yeah, because it is so different than a lot of the stuff that I watch now. But yet, this is my number one. You know, this is this is my movie. This is the one that I I will. Yeah, I will take a flamethrower to every other movie <laughs> in the world. I mean, this this is this is it. This is my baby. I mean, I think you can you can tell a great story within the typical Hollywood paradigm, right? I, I mean, I think you definitely, absolutely can. Mm-hmm. Like, you can do something really interesting in that, even in that space, that is challenging, and and something like this, I think, displays that. You know, it's just got that perfect tone. It's just in such a sweet spot of humor. Of you know, a little bit of romance, action, mm-hmm. science fiction, you know what I mean? It's sort of playing a lot of in a lot of different yep. fingers in a lot of different pies, but it all kind of fits really well. Yeah, and it's 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 a fun movie, you know. Mm-hmm. What I mean? Like I said, whenever that Huey Lewis comes in, dun dun, mm-hmm. dun dun, you know, I'm having fucking fun. Marty's skateboarding. It's it's cool. It's fun. It's sort of interesting. Yeah. It, it's got a lot of eth- little bit of ethical things mm-hmm. going on, touching on a lot of different notes, but never being like heavy-handed. Yeah, it's just it's just badass, and that's really all I have to. That's all I have to say about. That's that. all I have to say another, about that. Another, another Zemeckis Zemeckis film, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, complete doesn't matter whatsoever. But a little a little cool piece of trivia is I one of my one of my good festival friends i go to music festivals and one of my festival friend, festival friends uh his name is matt fox and actually his cousin is marty or michael j fox and when matt got married michael j fox uh, attended the wedding and oh, he wow. showed, yeah so that was kind of cool that's um, awesome yeah so i hate him <laughs> right sorry matt oh man i remember watching uh family it was family ties right is the one with uh, man, I, yeah, family. Yes, I. And the problem is, I get family ties and growing pains. Yeah, mistaken, exactly. Right. Even though one was really, really awesome, and then the other one was the the Alan Thick show, but and Kurt Cameron. Um, so yeah, family ties is the Michael J. Fox one. Growing pains is the Alan. Yeah, Thicke. that's Alan yeah. Thick. But uh. Yeah, I, I don't know. Just, obviously, this movie is kind of one that stands out, like I said, from my childhood, and I'll always have a certain affinity for. 
Um, always a fun watch. Definitely the whole, you know, Back to the Future 2 influenced me a lot, even though it's not as good of a movie, but those Air Mags that yeah, he man. wears. Do you have those Nike, kicks? Did you, I, have you? I do not. know those. There's like different versions of them, but they're so sought after that some of them are like twenty thousand dollars. I don't. They've done different yeah. types of releases. They've done some that you know aren't. You're not even supposed to really. They're not like to, to be worn. Right. And then I think they've done some that you can actually wear. Dude, I would I would take my dog for a walk in those. I think that, that that'd be the only like the only time I would ever wear them is just to like all right, I'm taking my dog out check these bad boys. Air mags, yeah. They they show them on. Uh, I see them on Instagram and sneaker websites and shit like that all the time mm-hmm. yeah i think it'd be cool to own a pair yeah my oh, man tyler's on getting at it i know right but uh next time we we have you on we'll be doing my number one film the thin red line so a complete 180 right? in tempo uh from this <laughs> seriously um but it'll be fun it's, it's yeah, yeah, a good yeah. one i'm looking forward to, to that conversation so i don't know we'll probably have that out in the next month or so but stay tuned for that one and Thanks for coming out again, Andrew. It was always fun to talk film with you. Absolutely. Thanks again. All right. Good night.